Good morning. Thanks, Rob, and thanks, Sue, so much for uh, leading us in prayer and for that reading as well. So I hope that doesn't disappoint us. Uh, and I thought this morning that in order to understand this whole idea of a hope that doesn't disappoint us, it might be helpful for us to think about things in the opposite for a few minutes. I'm a youth pastor. I like to look at things in the opposite perspective sometimes. But for most of us, many of us, probably all of us know what it is to be hopeful that some outcome will come about, only to be deeply disappointed when it doesn't happen. Over this last year, many of us have had plans uh, in place to maybe go away on holiday, to to meet up with friends, attend uh, a family event, or maybe a theatre production or a concert. Uh, Some of us have had holidays booked, only to have that possibility pulled from under our feet. And sometimes these were just small disappointments, little things that we missed. Others were bigger plans, like weddings or major celebrations that had to be cancelled. And the truth is that, in general, the greater the hope that we place in a certain outcome, the greater the level of our disappointment is when the thing in which we placed our hope doesn't materialise. Which is why it's so important to keep the level of our hope in proportion to the thing that it is that we're hoping for. If you've ever seen the disappointed child, you'll know it's possible for your peace and well-being to be completely shattered and your whole world to fall apart over things that have no real consequence at all in life. It can feel at times like it's all over when we don't get the thing or the outcome that we want. And thankfully, most of us learn as we grow that we can largely hold our disappointment in proportion to the consequences that we experience but it's still possible and actually quite common for us as adults to feel a disproportionate amount of loss when things don't go our way it's why it's so important to hold our hopes in perspective for the level of hope that we have that we invest ourselves in to be comparable to the outcome that we're hoping for And I remember years ago, as I was thinking about this, when I was working in Birmingham, standing in a queue to get a cup of coffee behind somebody who was chatting to the barista about the need to cut his coffee budget because he'd spent £55 on national lottery tickets the week before. 55 quid. I was fairly surprised by the amount because at that time £55 was the whole of my week's housekeeping budget for a family of four. And he'd risked it all in the hope that his numbers would come up and his life would be changed forever and for the better by a big payout. Turns out, of course, he hadn't won anything. 55 quid down the drain in a vain hope. And of course, the crazy thing is that when compared to the total number of tickets sold, your chances of winning the lottery doesn't increase that much by buying 55 tickets. You still have about just one in 14 million chance of your numbers coming good. And the saddest thing about putting your hope in a lottery win is that you only ever have that kind of level of hope. It's a slim hope at best. But the fact that hope is slim has never stopped people from investing themselves in them. In fact, it's true, particularly in the West, that much of our culture builds itself on hopes that have a little chance of coming to fruition. I hope one day to be so rich I never have to work again. I hope one day to be recognised as successful. I hope I become famous. 
I hope I make a world-changing difference. It's not that these hopes are necessarily wrong, even in and of themselves, but they're a likely hope. They are, if you like, a false hope, and that's an issue for us, not because of the likelihood of it coming to pass is low, but it's that we can so easily invest too much of ourselves, our lives and our energy, living for these false hopes, such that we waste the time and energy we do have, which would be better invested into things that are certain. So Jesus told a story once about a man full of false hope. This man was a self-made businessman who had plans to retire early and live the good life. He longed for a life of ease and comfort, and he knew that if he just worked hard enough or cleverly enough and got lucky enough, then in the future he'd be able to relax and indulge himself. He lived for the hope of a successful deal or some bumper windfall that would set him up for life, and then one day that hope seemed to be right at the point of fulfilment. Against the odds, one of his investments suddenly yielded a bumper return. He cashed in his shares and made a killing. His bank balance was overflowing and he had more to live on than he could ever need. And for a brief moment, he was ecstatic and delighted in himself that all his hopes had been fulfilled. But then tragedy struck. He was diagnosed with a fatal illness and had a brief and very unpleasant battle. He lost his life and died. All his success came to nothing and his money went to others. He died without ever getting to enjoy his prosperity. Now I've modernised the story a little for the sake of our ears. When Jesus told it, as recorded in Luke 12, 13 to 21, he spoke about a rich man whose land yielded a bumper crop and whose response was to build bigger barns. Sit back, take it easy. But you get the idea. Now at the end of this parable, Jesus put some quite uncharacteristic words into the mouth of God, who addresses this man as fool. Effectively, Jesus has God say, you idiot, to the man. It seems rude, but it's done on purpose. Because whatever, what other way is there to describe someone who puts all their hope in a transient, uncertain future without having first considered the one certain truth that's common to us all? that one day our lives will be over and we'll be called before God to give an account and before him we'll need to demonstrate who and what it is that our hope is in. You can't take it with you when you go, is the saying, and yet somehow people live as if this wasn't true for them, as if the financial and material security that they amassed in this life might actually be worth something in the next. It's a vain hope, a flawed hope and one that can never be fulfilled. But then what about people who say, that's okay by me, because they don't believe in any kind of afterlife? What about those whose hope is that there isn't anything once they die? Let me suggest to you that if that's your hope, you better be absolutely certain that you're right. And the problem, of course, is that there's no way to test that supposition and it's too late to do anything about it. And then there are those who would challenge the Christian confidence uh, about hope and a future and ask, but how can you be certain that there is life after death? And I want to explore that question, of course, a little bit later. 
But of course, my immediate answer would always be that of the two questions, it would always be better to get to the end of life and discover that, in fact, that was the end of all things. And it would be to get to the end and realize that actually, to get to the end of life and realize that actually we've wasted the whole of our life and failed like that rich man did in Jesus' parable, to get ourselves ready to meet our maker. What if we're hoping that there's nothing and it turns out that there is something for us after all? But let's begin to think again about this hope that doesn't disappoint us, a hope that's not vain or vague or based purely on our own ideas and wants, but one that's reasonable and secure and firm and fixed because it's based on what scripture tells us and what Christ has done on our behalf. And the first thing I want to think about is how can we, as broken, busted individuals, knowing as we do our own weakness and our fallibility, have confidence that our future is secure and that we'll be accepted? After all, we know that we're just jars of clay, and most of us feel like pretty broken, busted clay pots to boot. How can we know that we could ever be good enough to come into the presence of a holy God? And the simple answer to that, of course, is that we couldn't. But the verses we heard earlier tell us that we're justified through faith. To quote the cheesy old pseudo definition of justification, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never done anything wrong. What a fantastic hope to have before God. That I'm counted as clean. I'm viewed as if I've never done anything wrong. I'm viewed by heaven as if I'm perfectly pure and it doesn't matter what I feel like. The scripture tells me that's how I'm seen. Now, Kathy and I were out the other night for a a little date night uh, coffee and McFlurry. Uh, If you've seen her Facebook post, you'll know what I'm talking about. But we got talking uh, about... um, how hard it can be to see yourself in the way I've just described, because whilst we understand the fact that heaven can forgive our sin, we still remember it, and the memory of it has a habit of making us feel guilty, even if we can rationally agree that God declares us innocent. Like David said in Psalm 51, my sin is always before me. And we got to talking about the current popular popularity of of comparing our broken and yet redeemed lives to the Japanese art of kintsugi, which if you've never heard of it, is the art of putting broken pottery back together again, using gold to fill in the cracks. Whilst the pot's obviously not in its original and broken condition, it becomes a beautiful piece of art in its own right, as the master craftsman remakes it into something new. Literally, the very flaws that ruin the original become a thing of beauty in the maker's hand. Now I understand the attraction of viewing ourselves in this way because it makes sense of our experience and of the human condition, but whilst I appreciate what it's trying to say as well, it may be a helpful way to understand that even our worst bits can be redeemed and become gold in God's kingdom. The analogy works from an earthly perspective, but not very well from a biblical one. You see, our human reaction to guilt is to rationalise it or to deny it, 
or to simply run away from it because we can't escape it. But in Christ, God has obliterated it. In Isaiah 43, God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions. I will remember your sins no more. Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10 quote Jeremiah 31 saying, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. In Acts 3, Peter calls the crowd to repent so that their sins might be blotted out. And 1 John 1 famously tells us, if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive our sins and completely cleanses us. And these and a host of other verses that share the same thought tell us that whilst we may have trouble forgetting our past and letting go of it, heaven's perspective is entirely different. We may not be able to forgive and forget, but God has no such problem. Through Jesus Christ, it's job done. And I'd like to suggest that that's an absolutely fantastic truth. What an incredible hope. What a confidence-inspiring thought that we're clean. You, you are clean. Even I, even I am clean. No matter our past, in Christ, it will never count against us. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen, Paul's asked in chapter 8. It's God who justifies. Who is it then who condemns? No one. You have peace with God through Jesus, and it's not a tenuous peace. It's not some fragile peace that might be disturbed at any time. This is a peace not based on how you feel about yourself, and it's not a peace that the enemy of your soul can disturb. Because it's a peace not based on your feelings or your failures. It's a peace that's based upon the grace of God. God has reconciled you to him through Christ. Whatever you may feel about being at peace with him, he's at peace with you. You can boast in the hope of the glory of God, verse 2 tells us. All you need has been done on your behalf and all you have to do is repent and accept it. And Paul goes on then to talk about the fact that not only can you boast in the hope of the glory of God, but you can also glory in your sufferings. Now back in Jesus' time on earth, suffering was seen as a sure sign that God's hand was against you. Jesus' disciples famously asked the question of the man born blind, who sinned, this guy or his parents? And I think that sometimes there's a dangerous and subliminal message in Christian circles that if you're wrestling with something or you're struggling in some way, then it must somehow be because of some secret sin in your life or a lack of faith, which, of course, is seen as sin. But Jesus set his disciples straight on this. It's not true. Sin and suffering are not always linked but to glory in your sufferings, like Paul says. What a strange thing to say, as if this would be, you know, the, the strangest thing to say if we didn't get what he was actually saying to us in the previous verses. You see, the word that he uses here, uh, excuse my Greek pronunciation, something like kokomita, doesn't mean put up with your sufferings. 
it doesn't mean tolerate them. It doesn't even mean to hope in them or hope that they produce something good in you. Now, Paul chooses a much more powerful word here, and it means to actually exult in, to glory in, or almost to, to revel in something because of what it is or what it does. It's the same idea as boasting in the hope of the glory of God. It's the same root word. It's the same sense of come on of celebration and rejoicing we get from being father's children, of being seated in heavenly places with Christ, or being welcomed into the heavenly banquet, or being sons and daughters of heaven, or being saved, being the redeemed ones. Paul says we can glory in our sufferings because even they become part of and subject to all that Christ has done for us. They're part of life as we know it in our earthly existence, and therefore they're both subject to and caught up in this whole redemptive process. Like Matt was talking about to us the other week, our story is just one part, one small part of something much bigger that God is doing. And we're caught up in the redemption of the whole of creation. And so is the whole of our life and our experience. And if Christ is for us, who or what could ever stand against us? Now you may say, Mig, you're balmy, I don't like suffering. And both of those statements are probably true. I probably am balmy, and I don't enjoy suffering any more than most of us do. My natural response to difficulties, challenges, opposition and frustration is not to consider it pure joy when I face trials of many kinds. But in that verse in James and what Paul is talking about here, is not that we love suffering, not that we revel in life being hard, but we can glory in what God has done and is doing. His redemptive power at work in us, even in the midst of our suffering. Now our suffering might be hard. It might even seem unbearable, but it can never undo what Christ has done on our behalf. Our light and momentary troubles as Paul calls them, whilst he was outwardly wasting away, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now our sufferings might be physical, they may be situational, they may be mental or emotional or financial. We may suffer with a sense of failure or weakness or feelings of inadequacy or guilt, and none of that's good, and almost certainly none of that is heaven sent. But none of it can stand in the way of what God has done for us in the grand scheme of things. Even what comes against us, God can use to grow us and renew us in character, in perseverance, and in hope. And hope grows through experience as we understand that by His Spirit we somehow got bigger through each challenge that we faced. God in some strange way grows us, even through the challenges of life. The presence of his spirit at work in us is both assurance of redemption and certainty of his love for us. This is why Paul talks about the hope that doesn't disappoint us. Because it's a hope for the future. And as he says in 2 Corinthians 1.18, the spirit's that deposit that guarantees our inheritance. He's also the mechanism by whom we receive and experience God's love now. 
Paul says in, in that passage to the Corinthians, no matter how many promises God has made, they're yes in Christ. God's promise of salvation isn't yes when we feel like it and life is going well and no when we feel inadequate and life is tough. It's always yes in Jesus and it's always yes in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. God is at work exercising his redemptive power in your life right now. So are things positive in your life? Good. God's at work. Give him thanks and praise. Are things hard and difficult? God's at work. Stick with it. Persevere. Let the Spirit continue to develop your character and let that fuel hope. Don't let go of hope. Don't lose hope. Because hope in the person and the work of Jesus, hope for the future, hope in eternal salvation, hope for eternal life that starts now and will never end, will never, ever disappoint you. Now we know, we understand and we see in part, Paul said, why sometimes we have to face circumstances and hardship and struggle and wrestle with ourselves can be difficult to understand when we're going through it. God doesn't bring it, but God is able to redeem it and in all things work for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. Redeeming circumstances, redeeming us, redeeming the whole of creation. And Paul goes on in the next few verses to remind us that hope is steadfast and certain. Because it's not built on just a vain desire, on what we feel, and certainly not on anything we can do or achieve. So bear with me, let's just read those verses together, the next ones that Paul goes on to write. They'll be familiar to us, so reading from verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died. He didn't hang around waiting for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to turn to him before he turned to us. Before we'd even thought about him, he'd come and taken the hit for us. Nothing he's done for us required us to do anything for him first. How incredible the love he has for us. And Paul goes on to say, since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been recognized, reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Jesus has done it all. How could anything undo what he's done for us? As an enemy of God, Jesus died in your place. 
How could anything you do or anything that ever happens to you ever undo that? For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is a massive hope. A hope that one day all things will be well. And all that is wrong with our world and with ourselves will be put right. But what a hope. You belong to God and nothing can snatch you away. Your future, my future, is certain and secure, as unquestionable as the truth that Jesus is Lord. And because he's Lord, You can know with absolute certainty that what you've entrusted to him, he's able to keep safely till that day when we meet him face to face. When we stand before him in the throne room of heaven and declare with all those present, is he worthy? Yes, he is. I am my beloved's and he is mine. The scripture writer said, and his banner over me is love. And because of that, we can be certain that we have a hope that will never disappoint us. Let's pray together briefly. Lord, we want to thank you that our future is certain and secure. Because it's not based just on what we want or what we wish for. It's not based on a vain hope or a false hope, a slim hope or a distant possibility. It's based on a sure and certain truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that it is he who has won our salvation. He is Lord even over death itself and nothing can claim us. Or snatch us from his hand. Lord we want to thank you. That we have a hope for eternity. That starts now. And stretches on into the future. A hope in the security that we have in you. A hope that cannot be shaken. Cannot be undone. Cannot be changed. Lord that one day we will know fully. Even as we fully know. One day We will see you face to face, even as you see us now. Lord, thank you that you've turned your face towards us. You look on us. You make your face to shine on us and you give us peace. You are at peace with us, Lord. Help us to make peace with you. And rejoice in all we can look forward to. And an eternity found in your presence. In Jesus' name. Amen.